Hey, everybody. We have a, uh, a sponsor to talk to you guys about quick. We've had them on the show a few times. We've seen them at the Grid Life Paddocks for the past couple years. Uh, really good people and uh, really, really cool products and cars and services. So Fields Auto Works, uh, fun cars to drive and own, serious track performance, uh, a lot less hassle, cost, consumables. Um, they have uh, they make their own cars, and very cool stuff. If you haven't heard, listen back to the one with Rob Fields. We talk about a lot of the details of the Cardinal. Uh, extremely unique, affordable for the performance that you get. Like a, I don't know, it's probably like a fifth of the cost of a GT3 and runs about as fast as one. Uh, easy performance upgrades like wheels, tires, boost, tune, aero stuff, even engine swaps, I'm sure. Uh, three performance level offerings, the S300, the Cardinal, and the Scioto. Uh, which is gorgeous, by the way. That car is amazing looking. Um, opportunities for build spots uh, are limited, and uh, they are building cars right now. They've taken orders. Uh, we have seen one of the uh, earlier production ones at a bunch of Grid Life events. Really, really cool. The Cardinals got great vintage vibes, uh, modern Mustang underpinning, and uh, like probably half or less of the weight of, uh, of a modern Mustang. So your bearings, your hubs, your everything lasts a long time. Uh, and Fields Engineering, uh, full motorsports services are available. Shop services for large projects. Arrive and drive stuff uh, services for your own car or one of theirs. Uh, engineering, design, and small-scale fab work and production. Composites fab work. Um, and it puts the combined expertise of aerospace engineers, IndyCar builders, IMSA crew chiefs, and uh, more on their staff, on their crew, uh, at your fingertips, which is uh, hard to find and really, really great prep shop work. Uh, super cool people to have trackside, uh, and they let me steal their tools when I need them, which is great for me. So, so uh, uh, if you uh, if you want to check out FieldsAutoWorks.com, uh, really, really cool people. Welcome, everybody, back at Circuit of the Americas. This is Slip Angle episode number nine, I think. Uh, it's been a busy two days for me, but I've been productive. And I am in a semi-truck sleeper cabin with Amir Bentatu, who uh, is kind of famous on the West Coast for Time Attack. Uh, has a really, really remarkable, like breathtaking Acura NSX. And uh, I want to talk about Time Attack. That's a, a hell of an introduction. Thank you. <laughs> very kind of you. And uh, I'm super happy to be on the podcast. I've been listening for a very long time. And uh, yeah, let's talk Time Attack. It's my favorite thing to talk about. So um, let's let's start with like an introduction, kind of how you got into driving. Okay. Um, did you did you grow up in motorsports or is this something you picked up as, as kind of an adult? Uh, I guess you could say like as a teenager, I really liked it. My dad was very into cars. And eventually, I, I've always been a fan of motorsport. And the older I got, the more I loved the sport. And uh, eventually just decided that Time Attack was a thing for me. I watched a couple of JDM option, or uh, hot version videos and whatnot in the late 90s, early 2000s. Loved what I saw. And uh, 
decided that that was the sport for me to follow and over the last 14 years got to where I am today you could say so uh, the, your your car has been a progression over a number of years what did you start driving on track uh, oh so I started driving on track with an E21 320 i BMW a very slow and terrible probably one of the worst BMWs you could drive but I loved it still love those cars and then switched to a Miata went to an air-cooled 911 started with an E36 M3, which was my first actual time attack car, which we did an enthusiast class with Redline Time Attack and Global Time Attack uh, Super Lap Battle in like 13, 14, and then went to turn the E36 into a time attack car, a street class time attack car, and then the car went down, unfortunately, for multiple years, and then picked up the NSX and fell in love with that and turned that into my car. So, um, it's it's kind of interesting the the market for NX NSXs has kind of been insane for the last <laughs> several years. I imagine at the time that you bought it, it was it was like an affordable, good chassis to buy for for Time Attack, and now the market's insane. Do do you regret having a a race car NSX? Oh, like I would never regret it. Like I'm, you could give me any car and I would happily ruin it and probably turn it into a time <laughs> attack car. Uh, I have zero regrets about that. I look at the values and it's amazing. And realistically, my car was a very high mileage car. I think it had 220,000 miles on it before I pulled the stock C-Series engine that was in it. It had been hit in the left front and it was far from a perfect car. So if we're going to turn anything it's into like a, a time donor, attack car. Yeah? Exactly. And that's why I bought it. And it was the kind of car that I was with a, a friend at dinner and just said, hey, if you ever decide to sell it, let me know. I will happily buy it. And that's kind of what happened. And then I originally bought it as a nice weekend car for my girlfriend and I. You know, it's kind of a, a responsible adult car. And after the first time on track, it was a slippery slope and turned into, uh, I guess you could say, what it is now. Well, So what were the specifics on it? Uh, what year is it? It looks like a kind of a, I don't know my antisexes, but it looks like <laughs> second gen kind of... Uh, or whatever. What's the terminology? Yeah, so um, they don't really have terminology for like the generations. You'll hear people say any one, any two, but that's realistically that happened in a time span where the cars looked exactly the same. The car is a '91 uh, coupe, which was like the earliest version you could get, the lightest. And we recently, um, for Global Time Attack Finals last year, put on the updated. So they call it just basically O2 front end. And we did the Spoon Sports front and rear bumper because uh, we decided, or we decided to partner with them, and they would have us. And uh, Spoon was kind enough to help us make that transition. So now the car has the updated front end, and it, overall, it's really just like an old '80s designed car that I love and will probably drive for as long as I can. And like you were saying, the valleys have gone crazy. So I bought another shell that uh, would be a very, very unlimited kind of car. So if anything happens to this one, we'll probably cut it up and bring it back. Or if it's beyond saving, we have a second chassis to work with. Okay. And so I like to uh, geek out about technical details on occasion. I appreciate that. And, um, <laughs> so let, let's start with like the really, really basics of this car. Okay. Um, as a time attack car, it's a really interesting choice. But there are things about it that are really attractive. Um, it's a, it's a long car. It's a wide wheelbase, and it's light. Yeah. And so, uh, if you have a drive line that can make horsepower, it's it's kind of the perfect storm. Uh, I would agree. And because of how slow it is in stock form, you don't get classed out of things. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Which has worked for us very well in uh, Global Time Attack because they do have a, 
exceptions to classes. Like if you, if I were to show up with a Senna, I can't just sign up for any class I want. They, they will say, okay, the base performance of this class is this, and the stock NSX performance isn't. I, it's honestly not that great. It's not a very fast car in a straight line. The dynamics are excellent. It's a very hard car to drive, but uh, it's left me enough room that we have a good base, and it has taken a ton of work to bring it into what it is now. Well, and I, I think that's what makes it really unique. Is I can think of a lot of chassis that are, you know, sports cars, and they are light. But maybe they aren't long and wide. Yes. Uh, like Lotus is a perfect example. I don't think that a Lotus is a particularly good time attack car because I think if you took that 200 horsepower chassis and you made it 700, it might be uh, a real challenge to wrangle. I would agree with that. And as I, we have an Elise as well, one that we're putting a K in. And uh, I looked at it as in, in, in the sense of if something were to happen to my car, like we were saying, they get so expensive that I don't know if I could afford to build. Uh, when I was in street class or wanted to stay a little bit more street tire, uh, I didn't know if our, our current chassis or our spare chassis wouldn't fit into any of those classes. So I looked at options, and Lotus was one of them. But the more I looked into it, the more I thought the, there were a lot of shortcomings that the NSX doesn't have. And you're you're absolutely right. Like they designed the car, taking a lot of their their technology that they had learned from F1 and. Uh, had really, they, it was the first car that I think was designed with FEA and with CFD. It was a very advanced design for what it was. Like if you hold a control arm, they're very, very light. I think each control arm weighs like three pounds, you really? know, like, and it's all very oddly shaped aluminum because it was, it, it, all of the arms were basically designed with the idea that, okay, we're going to design it for the load that it's going to take and it needs to be strong where it needs to be and not. Uh, and not, and we're going to remove the weight where it doesn't need to be strong. So the whole design's really, really good. I mean, if you look at the FXMD car, that car went to Buttonwillow pre-repave, first lap out, and did a 37. Yeah. And they basically just dusted off the car, brought it out, uh, and then tucked it away. And that's a track that now is a second and a half, two seconds faster. And it, it shows just how potent the car is. And that car was Turbo C-Series, probably heavier than mine is now. Good power. But uh, and a, a good aero package, but it shows how how potent and how competent the chassis is. Sure, and so uh, kind of moving from the the base chassis itself, your setup is uh, not let's say uncommon in Time Attack, but maybe uncommon in that chassis. Yes. Um, tell me about what engine you chose, what transaxle goes with it, and you know how you make the power that you need to to be fast in this class. Yeah, so we K-swapped it, which uh, at the time I think it was like the second or third K-swapped NSX in the world. Uh, one was in, I think, Malaysia just because they couldn't get a C-Series, and then there was another guy that tried it in Arizona, and the car never actually came to fruition. So when I had the car, I knew that if I, if I was going to turn it into a time attack car, there were a couple of things that I wanted. I wanted as light of a car as possible. I wanted a big aftermarket, and I wanted high power potential, and the K offered all of that. So we looked at potentially J-swapping the car, Staying with a C, K swapping it, and the K just made the most sense. So we sure. did that. And uh, you've kind of switched over the last couple of years. Um, you, unlike some, ha have chosen to run with K20s. Yes. Uh, why? Uh, I need a lot of RPM. So since we have to run an H pattern in Global Time Attack, uh, we can run a dog box, but it has to be H pattern. The Samsonis six speed made the most sense. I mean, we broke it today. We we killed sixth. We broke it at the ridge, and uh, we've gone through a lot of transmissions. That's honestly the weak point of this setup. And, uh, you know, the 
the K is awesome, and we need because of the transmission, we need 9,000 RPM. We tried a K24, we over revved it, and unfortunately blew it up. So we went back to a K20 just because we need 9,000 RPM. And then I will, I mean, I like well, to look hold on. at. Um, if I can interrupt, tell me why you need 9,000 RPM. Uh, because our transmission uh, final drive and our sixth gear will only take us to 171 or 169 miles per hour at 9,000 RPM, which we are we hit on the Coda back straight with about three seconds left. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so we have to have 9,000, and then from there, like I've always been a vi- like I like square engines or a bigger bore than stroke, and the K24 is like literally the exact opposite. I got talked into it, and it's a great engine if you're looking for a lot of torque, which our car doesn't need it because it puts power down so well, and uh, I like RPM. And when I looked at every K20 build that HPD and Honda has done, and then a lot of like four-cylinder racing engines, you know, because I, li- I like to look at what professionals are doing and see what they're doing and why, uh, almost everyone runs a two-liter. Like, there's no one in professional motorsport uh, with a four-cylinder. I think the Mazda DPI car, two-liter. Uh, all of the HPD cars that run high horsepower, uh, like Pikes Peak cars, they're all mm-hmm. two liters. So I decided, you know, it worked for us for a long time. Uh, we would, I mean, Coda last year, we were going, we were pushing a gallon and a half of coolant per lap. And so the, the temperatures spiked at 270, where we maxed out the temp gauge. And we still were able to drive the car back into the trailer at the end of the weekend and drive the car back off of the trailer when we got home. And the K20s have just served us well, so we, we went back to what we know. And so uh, you, you have this this K20. I assume it's a built engine. Uh, it's actually just it's a stock engine with rods, pistons, and cams. Okay. So but it's otherwise like an RSX engine that uh, we just changed internals and cams. Do you have so, like a local builder or do you do it yourself? Uh, we we are currently using Dave at RS Machine, who built this engine, and it served us very well. We had it at finals and now this event, and the engine's been flawless. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and then it's not NA because it makes gobs and gobs of horsepower. <laughs> so uh, it's a forced induction car. What yes. changes do you make to the K20 to, to allow you to run the amount of boost that you'd like to? Uh, so we used... Forged internals, like forged rods, forged pistons. We have JE pistons with Brian Crower rods, and then we run Brian Crower Stage 2 cams. Okay. And realistically, when, we, when we're we going to pull this engine out after this event, there's nothing wrong with it, but we're, we want to have two engines that we're constantly sure. cycling. And the next engine is going to have a sleeved block. Uh, RS Machine does their own sleeving, so we're going to have... Uh, we're going to pull this one out to get sleeved because we just changed the turbo and we're making a lot more power now. And uh, I'd say something as simple as a stock K20 with with a good sleeve, rods and pistons. We change the cam because we want to put the power where we want it, but you don't even have to do that, and you'll have a K20 that makes more power than you need. I mean, that's a 7 800 horsepower engine easily. For sure. What, at what compression ratio? Uh, we're running 10.5. Okay. Yeah. So uh, what fuel? E85. Just like pump E85? Yeah. or do you? We stopped by, I think, the Chevron near the Airbnb, and filled up ten gallons of E85 and tossed it in this morning. Ten gallons for uh, for the day. Uh, yeah, we go through about we, so we go through five gallons every three laps. Gotcha. Yeah, it's uh, they're thirsty. Yeah, uh, oh, yeah especially absolutely. I had for for some time I had a, a turbocharged Evo, and uh, if I wanted to get enough fuel to not have to run to the station, I'd bring like forty gallons yeah. or something <laughs> to the track. It was nonsense. <laughs> but uh, so. You, you you talked about now um, 
the the engine you've got a turbo in the car it makes mm-hmm. a lot of power what's the setup why did you choose what you did okay so uh and are you asking about the turbo setup in particular yeah okay yeah so we're running a garrett g30 770 turbo with a 101 ar which has been absolutely incredible uh the amount of power and the response that we maintained was awesome so uh i reached out to garrett to see kind of what they thought would be the best turbo for the car and they said a garrett g3770 with a 0.83 i believe ar would be ideal for the car and the power level and the response we wanted but uh the AR housing wasn't available, so we went with a 101. And even with that, like we're making a ton of power. Uh, we don't know exactly how much because we had too much wheel spin on the dyno. Uh, but the car pulls like it's never pulled before, and the response is pretty much instant, especially if you could learn how to drive around. Like if you're in a very low RPM where, let's say, you're out of the ideal range, if you just kind of crack the throttle just enough to keep the turbo spinning, the response is instant right after. Awesome. So, but amazing. Like the G Series turbos are phenomenal. Oh, I have no doubt. Um, and I looked a little bit at your setup. Uh, it's parked out in front of the garages. Uh-huh. The turbo is mounted really, really low relative to the engine. Does that mean that you need a scavenge pump to send oil back to the, the pan? Or do you have a dry sump setup, uh, like all kinds of trick stuff? No, it's a, that's a great question. Um, so originally we had a Sidewinder turbo, which is very common on K-Series because on a lot of the K-Cars, the exhaust basically sits right against the firewall, so they run it up above the transmission. So mm-hmm. we got that because for our car, it was something similar. Uh, but I really didn't like it because it made changing the engine and having to work with plumbing very challenging. So I worked with Riley Stair at RS Motorsport with uh, along with Vibrant to get a bottom mount turbo to bring the center of gravity down, have a straight shot to the turbo in terms of airflow. And, uh, you know, we do have to run a scavenge pump because the turbo is so low. We use a unit two oil pan that uh, our good friend that is running today at GLTC, Jim Houghton, referred me, to, uh, referred me to, to use. And it's overall a very simple setup. The only real custom thing on the car is the plumbing. And the is I guess the, you say the the plumbing and the um, or should I say the all of the piping for and uh, all the ma- like the exhaust manifold intercooler and, and then the piping to go from the turbo intercooler to the engine. Other than that, it's all stuff you can buy off the shelf. Awesome. Well, like one of the one of the really cool things about your setup that I think shares at least in philosophy with uh, a person you're sharing the garage with, Ferris yeah. Kartumi, is by putting the turbo where you do you're moving a lot of heat away from many things. I mean, yeah. Ferris essentially puts them outside of his car, yeah. and as a consequence, <laughs> he doesn't burn up a whole lot of stuff. Yes, and we definitely experienced that. Like our The engine bay temps, like we can go out, do three laps in a row, open the hatch, and you can touch anything in the engine bay. The turbo's far enough away that we're not cooking things, and luckily, because everything goes rearward, you know, it's constantly getting air on it and all the hot air goes behind it and then the engine base stays pretty cool. Right. Yeah. That's, uh, it's really unique. So we've, we've now talked about, uh, kind of the basics of the car, but uh-huh. you, your car looks really fantastic in part <laughs> because you. of all the trick, uh, aerodynamic components that are on the car. Um, tell me about what, what you have set up and what, what is RS future? What do they do? Yeah. So, um, RS Future is a it's a company that I own and have designed to basically uh, take all of the things that I wanted in a Time Attack Aero package for my class. And uh, for most cars that are on track, I couldn't find anything that I wanted to buy. So I reached out 
to a couple of people, made my own prototypes out of, you know, carbon and foam and all that fun stuff and made a few things for my car. And from there, a lot of people saw it and then asked if they could get something similar and turn that into a business. So we do a lot of composites. We do uh, GT wings. Um, we do front splitters. We do side splitters, uh, custom aero packages, essentially anything you would ever need aerodynamically. If you want a custom package, we can do that. But our off-the-shelf packages have worked very, very well. I mean, the one that's on our car today is something that you can go on to the website or give me a call and have within a couple of months. And it's literally the most simple package you can get. Okay. And so uh, regarding like maybe splitters and wings and stuff like that, uh-huh. uh, probably the airfoil of the wing is uh, of a, kind of a plug-and-play variety. But maybe you need uprights that are specific to your your chassis or you know to make the span appropriate for where you're mounting, so on and so forth. How do customers... Correct. give you that information uh, I mean so most people just call me and say hey can you make a package for this car to which the answer is almost always yes and from there I either need their car at the shop or if I can get a car that or their version of a car uh, locally I will take all the measurements and get the mounts made and the aerofoil like you were saying is it's we use one for everything and it's worked very well for us I mean even on my car where we're if anything we have like too much front downforce we run that thing up to like 8, 12 degrees, and even on our car, it's it's done a great job. Short of an unlimited uh, package, I think it works for just about everything. We have it on limited, uh, cl- limited uh, class time attack cars, which are very, very fast. I mean, the, fr- the fastest, I believe, radial tire car at Button Willow is using our package with a single element wing. Uh, and I think my car is the second fastest. What car was that? It's the Renner, uh, the Renner Motorsport GC8. Okay. So they're on an AO52, and they did a 44.1. I've done a 44.3. And uh, then the WRD Prelude, I think they were on track for like a 44.5 before they had an engine failure. You know, gotcha. but all those cars are basically with a off-the-shelf aero package that we make. So uh, maybe that's a great opportunity to transition into some of your uh, recent accolades on track. Okay. Uh, I, I think y- you've been in the universe a really long time, but it was... Uh, probably last year where where you kind of you set a time at Buttonwell where everyone was just like holy shit what <laughs> what was the what was the build up to that so we had kind of known that the car was capable of it and the prior finals before I think it was so that was 20 so we did 21 20 and I think it was 19 was our first one and in 2019 we finished the car in the garage on Saturday so we didn't run a single lap Saturday and on Sunday for GTA Finals, we essentially only had a couple of sessions to do it. And our first session, uh, a Miata set on fire, so we didn't get to complete our lap. And on the second session, uh, someone crashed their car into the sunset pit wall. And I remember uh, that. Huh? I think I remember that. Yeah. Or at least seeing it on the stream anyway. And we got red flagged again. So we came out, and I think our time was a 159. So... Uh, and that's why I think when we came out the next year, and I remember because there was like a street class time attack Facebook page, and I try to pay attention. Like I often I don't chime into many things, but I'll I'll pay attention. Like I love the sport, so I like to see what's going on. And they asked kind of who was who they thought was going to win street class, which was you know interesting. And that was when Sean and Jackie came out, and those guys are phenomenal competitors. Like I have the utmost respect for both of them. And uh, it was just funny seeing that. Uh, 
you know, and naturally I, our car didn't, our car hadn't done anything to that point. So I don't think anyone understood the potential. Sure. Or should I say it hadn't done anything that anyone would notice. Like we'd had a lot of successful tests where we'd gone to local tracks and broken track records there, but they weren't official. And it was just us kind of going out having fun. But uh, looking at that page, it was like, okay, who's going to win street class at finals? And people were betting and all sorts of things. And like my name wasn't even in the ringer kind of thing. <laughs> and I, and I, I, not that I took it personally or I thought anything of it. I just found it, you know, I, I love time attack drama because I feel like there's so much of it. It's, it's almost endless. as entertaining yeah, as the, the driving. Uh, so I'll often just look at it for entertainment. But I was like, okay, cool. You know, like, I, and I don't. Like, I, I didn't know what the car was going to do because up to that point, we had had very little testing at Buttonwillow and we went out. And How we many laps a, would you say you have there, though? Oh, God, I have hundreds of laps there. Like, I, I, I've i coached there for 14 years. Gotcha. So, in terms of like track knowledge, I have, like, I can go out there and just about any car and be fairly competent within a couple laps. Uh, just because of how much track knowledge I have. You know, going to Road Atlanta, coming out to Coda, like they're very challenging tracks where, you know, people that are locals at each track have a big advantage. And Buttonwillow, I'm just a local. So that was my advantage. And we went out, I I think we had like a 44.8 or a 44.7, something like that. And I think it was a little shocking to a lot of people because I remember even reading, like I didn't think we were going to do a 44. I was like, oh, if we do a 46, I'll be happy, you know, kind of situation. And... Uh, Cuban, who you know is a is a good friend, and at the time we were just talking about street class times, and he bet his one dollar on me, which I appreciated, <laughs> you know, because I lost him his dollar the year before. Uh, he was he said I, I would never do a forty four, you know, and when we went out and did it, I was like, oh, like nice to know the car could do it, and I think that's probably the lap you're talking about, and it was very. It was exciting because we knew that the car had a lot of potential. When we put the car on the drawing board and we ran a lot of simulations, that's what we thought it would do. And it was nice to actually achieve it. Oh, for sure. And so um, then you came he- uh, to Coda last year. Yes. And you had the, the K24. and um, you, you We had, had a an- K20 at that time. Oh. So uh, we were still K20. The only time we had the K24 was for the Ridge and then for Long Beach. Okay. So we had a K20 last year. But you, like... Uh, Coda last year didn't go great. Like uh, no. it was just it was a terrible event. Yeah. From so from the f- we we came to Coda and we were well tested. Everything was going well. We came in feeling confident about the car. We went out the first session and the car died because of a fuel pump fuse which had never failed before and has never failed since. So like what a start to the event. You know, the car died on the outlap rolled it in and we were chasing we had no idea what it was and naturally you never look for a fuse because like, sure. you always expected something far more complex. Andy loading trailers. That's fine. Um, so you never expect to go out on your first lap and just have the car die for a fuel pump fuse. And then on the second lap, went out and had a windshield full of coolant uh, because we were just spraying all over the overflow. Uh, or should I say a hatch? Because back then the overflow was in the in the hatch. And um, pulled in. The car had gotten pretty hot. We did a 220.0, which at the time beat the record, and that was my first lap ever on Coda uh, in the car. And we're like, okay, we're feeling, we're feeling very good. We beat last year's record. Uh, the car has a lot of pace in it. And then the plan was to do the track in thirds. So we're like, okay, the car's overheating, but it still runs. And we figured we'll do the track in thirds for day one and then come back day two and try to set a proper lap. So we did that on the first day, and we worked on sector one, sector two, sector three, since I had never driven the track before, uh, and it was my first time with the NSX on that track, 
are on this track. And uh, as we got through the day, we found that basically we could do one lap. We would push a gallon and a half of coolant per lap. And then at that point, we get to about 270 degrees of coolant temperature. And I didn't want to push it anymore. So we do one lap per sector, did that, ran three 20s in a row, despite the fact that we were only trying one sector at a time. And then went out for the first session of day two. And uh, I was warming up the tires. And anyone that's ever driven an NSX knows that they can be incredibly challenging to drive. And just wasn't paying attention. I was off throttle, kind of like moving the car side to side. And I was off throttle too long, and the car just pitched sideways and spun itself and locked the tire into the fender well. And my weekend was over. We broke two tire, or we broke two ball joints and a steering rack, and never set a proper lap. And it was all my fault. So that was very, very frustrating. Like if I'd have been, if I wouldn't have been as aggressive as I was heating the tires. I wouldn't have had that problem. And it's one of those situations where that car, when you're on it, you know, like I have a very, I understand what the car is going to do, but when you're driving at 60% and you're off throttle because you don't think it's going to be a problem, you know, you make a small mistake that turns into then something it's a huge. problem. Yeah. Because yeah. you're just not even, like you're, you're thinking you're driving so slow, it wouldn't be a problem. But weight or load transfer still exists no matter what speed you're going. Right. And I wasn't even thinking about it. And I was like, my mind was somewhere completely different. The next thing I know, I'm off sideways and my wheels locked into my fender. That sucks. Yeah. So last year sucked. So uh, you, <laughs> you've got um, most of 2021. Yes. What events were on your calendar last year after Coda? So you, you fixed the car, then what? <laughs> so we had a very challenging 2021. So we fixed the car after Coda. The engine took too long. We didn't make it to Road Atlanta. Then we decided we were going to go to... I think it was the Ridge. Yes, the Ridge. Put our K24 in there, and the performance was excellent. Like, if we didn't need the RPM we needed, it probably would have been fine. But uh, went to the Ridge, and we we won the event, uh, and then lost six gear on the first or the third session of the first day, and figured, okay, you know what? Car's at least feeling good. And then Long Beach got added to the calendar, and... We were going against Jackie, who's obviously a very fast competitor, and he's been kind of our biggest competitor for as long as the car has been around. And it sucks because every time him and I try to have a proper fight, my car breaks. <laughs> <laughs> That's so attack. And we we'd even joke like, okay, we're finally gonna have a good fight because you know him and I were fierce competitors, but we're also pretty good friends. Like him and I have talked for a long time. Sure. And I think it's funny. I think people that don't know us might think. We don't like each other, or it's a very fierce competition. But to be honest, I wish Jackie the best. I think he's an awesome guy. Uh, I love what he's doing with PhD, him and Alex, you know. So, and I always tell him, like, if I'm going to lose to someone, I'd rather lose to someone I like. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> kind of situation. So, we went to Long Beach, and we were both like, okay, we're finally going to have a proper battle. We'll see what the cars can do. And then on the outlap of the first lap, I was like, okay, the car feels a little funny. One on my first flyer, and then on the back straightaway, lost the engine. And I've, I, in 14 years in motorsport, I've never lost an engine. Like, I'm very particular about how the car is running, what I can do. And we'll run a car hard, like we did at Coda the year before, where, I mean, at 270 degrees of coolant temp, we were, the engine held together kind of thing. And it was the first time I'd ever lost an engine. It was very painful because it was, like, awesome experience at Long Beach. Like, we... We couldn't ask for a cooler place to be and then don't even get to compete in the event. Like, right. first lap, we're done. So, that was tough. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then from there, we went to... So, we, we basically had, like, bad, good, bad. And then we went to Global Time Attack Finals. And we had the strangest issue where we had a battery failure. And 
we couldn't like it, our power steering stopped working and we couldn't tell what it was and we thought it was an issue so we were chasing all sorts of things the car started and fired up instantly it had constant voltage everything was good but under load we lost power steering and essentially other than the last the last session of the final day at finals where we just swapped to a different battery. That was the only lap we got. And we beat our record by a little bit. We went from a 44.7 to a 44.3, which is much slower than the car should have been. But our 2021 was probably a very tough year because we knew the car had the pace, the car had shown it, and then we had a lot of failures like that. Sure, yeah. You know? So 22 uh, decided to come back and run a few more events in street class, and here we are at Coda. So uh, it's February, and uh, what was your time for the end of the weekend? So we came to Coda, and we just wanted the car to run, and we finished the weekend with a 13.8, I believe. 213.8 is bonkers fast. <laughs> like, it is nutty how fast that is. Thank you. And uh, just think, you know, like, what, last year, the unlimited overall record was was just a few seconds away from that. Yeah. Um, so to see that in a street class car, which is, is just incredible on a 200 turbo tire. Thank you. Um, now that this event is kind of under your belt, probably you'll go through some things. What's the next mm-hmm. event on the calendar? So this event's under our belt. We broke six gear day or day two, session one. We we're hoping to go a little bit faster, but uh, unfortunately had a rough session one, so we're done with that. We're probably going to change sixth. Uh, we're going to talk to the guys at Gridlife, see if our car is compliant for their Willow Springs event okay. and potentially go to that. And, which I think is you. and uh, That would be me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've been thinking about it a lot this weekend already. Yeah. So make sure my car's compliant. If it is, I'll happily come out. And then after that, the next big event we have is potentially Road Atlanta. But we're, we're currently in the process of switching classes. So we're going to kind of talk to our partners and decide if the plan is to just say, screw it, we're going to park the car now and just move, like, you know, change what we need to change. Sure. Uh, or if they think Road Atlanta is important to them, and if it's important to them, then we'll fix the car. Road Atlanta scheduled for May. Yes, is that right. Okay. And then if we go to if we go in May to Road Atlanta, and our car is legal for Willow Springs, we'll most likely try to find a way to partner with a shop and leave the car on the East Coast for a month, and then come out to Midwest Fest because a lot of your guys have come out to our events. Sure, yeah. And we would love to return the favor and come hang out with you guys out there. It seems like an awesome event. I'm pretty good friends with Jim. I talked to Ferris a lot, and they've said that Midwest Fest is such a cool event, and I've heard it from countless people, so we'd really love to be out there. That'd be rad. Um, so what changes are are planned to make the move? I assume the, the move is to limited, or is the move straight to unlimited? We're going straight to unlimited. Okay. Yeah, so, so we, we looked at what the budget would be to go to limited and what it would be to go to unlimited, and it's almost identical okay. to build a car the way... I mean, if you look at our street class car, um, I get shit for it constantly but you know i hear the whole that's not a streetcar thing but i don't look at it as what i don't care what the class is called i'll open a rule book and i'll build it as basically to the all of the gray area that i can i don't care if it's autocross time attack or any sort of motorsport you know well if you're uh, not doing it and you're not winning yeah then there's probably <laughs> a good reason why you're not, you're yeah. not winning, right yeah and i know there's a lot of people that cry in time attack about the rules and i i hear it constantly in all sorts of podcasts and facebook groups of people that just bitch constantly about how much they don't like the rules but realistically the rules are the same for everyone and if you try hard enough almost any car will be competitive so, and, and i don't say this uh flippantly uh-huh. it's, it's not calloused but um you know time attack does it, it does take means in order to build a, a car but 
uh, the word I like to use is effort, right? Yes. And when I think about effort, effort is time, it's expertise, it's money, and those things combined are how you build winning programs. Uh, and so, like, there are some people that uh, through some life decision or, or life situation, they can only put forth so much effort. And uh, there are other people that are going to try harder, I yeah, think. I, it, and so it, Time Attack is, um, I, I think, very much a sport of dedication. I agree 100%. I mean, you look at the guys that are at the pointy end of the field, and there are guys that have traded everything that they could for it. You know, like, they, they give up a lot to be there. And I think people are very used to this NASA, SCCA kind of uh, everything is fair and we try to make everyone win. And I think it's a lot of uh, no time attacker left behind, which is what has gotten very common lately. And I can't stand it. Like, it's because if, if you, this is a, a sport where the cars are supposed to be extreme. If you look at the roots of it, like in Japan and the things that inspired all of us, I would say, you'd be, like, people that didn't, they didn't fall into time attack. Like, they, they love time attack. They care about it. They are diehard time attackers. They look at it and they say, okay, like, this, like these guys de have dedicated their lives. They've dedicated their shops to this. And then someone that builds a car in one year expects to win, gets their ass kicked, and it says the rules are unfair. Why is this guy so fast? But like, no, that guy traded every weekend, uh, every dollar he had, and did what he could to make it happen. I mean, like, I, I know a lot of people think that uh, just because I drive an NSX and I built an NSX that I have endless resources and. I'm a lot wealthier than I am, but when I bought that car, I was just a service writer at a shop. You know, I was making probably very sub-average income in L.A., but I put every dollar I had. Sure. I did everything I could, and I made it happen. And I feel like if you're willing to put the dedication in, you too can be successful, but you also have to realize that when you're doing a NASA regional event, you're competing against the fastest guys in your city. Maybe the fastest guys are kind of local. In a time attack event, you're often going against the fastest guys in the country that are absolutely dedicated to this um the gears and gasoline youtube channel did uh, uh, some grid life recap a few years ago and they interviewed um at, like a really intense interview with james houghton i at remember it <laughs> road atlanta and yeah. it is probably the best like capture of how he thinks about competing in this sport and i think it describes in great detail how people who are really successful think about what they do yeah and so Absolutely. if you haven't seen it, um, anyone who's listening who hasn't seen it, uh, well, I will put a link to that episode into this uh, post. And uh, if I can get some photos from Amir, I will put this on the Tractune website as well. Um, but he just described that it is, it's, it's, it's an obsession to the point, almost to the point of being unhealthy, where every day, every minute, he's thinking about how to be faster. Yeah. I mean... The car looks very nice. I think people see it, and it's obvious there's a lot of money into it, and I think people assume that there's a lot more behind it, but like, I decided that that's what I wanted to do, and I love this sport, and I wanted to build a shop, and I live in a tiny, like, 700-square-foot, one-bedroom apartment that it's I rent with my choice. girlfriend. Exactly, but I chose that I'm going to build that car and build a business and do what I can because I love it that much, and I think that that's one thing that I'm very passionate about in Time Attack, and that's why I think it's a little frustrating when I see people complaining about how unfair things are but life's unfair it is yeah yeah <laughs> um so the changes for street class to unlimited you've got almost as much power as as you might want um what are you going to do different in unlimited that you don't have today so 
um, we are currently we th- we don't know how much power we make because of uh, spinning tires on the dyno, but we think we can add at least another 12, 14 pounds of boost and make another 100 wheel horsepower, which we're okay. going to try. Uh, we think we can get the car substantially lighter than it is. Um, we're going to switch from our off-the-shelf aero to redesigning a new off-the-shelf aero package for people that want a very high downforce package. Sure. Something that works for, let's say, uh, most cars. You're never going to absolutely optimize the car, but you're also not going to have to spend twenty, thirty thousand dollars on an aero package. So we're going to switch to that to have a new off-the-shelf design that's a high downforce package. Uh, we're going to we're working with Titan Seven to get a custom set of wheels made and to run some very wide slicks. And from there, we're also working with Sadev to make a new transmission for the K-Series. Uh, the weakest link has always been the transmission with Ks. And working with them, we think we found a solution where uh, the transmission will be as reliable as the engine. Okay, that would be fantastic, yeah. right? Because uh, I have said for a little while that one of the biggest challenges in Time Attack is that when you have a car that makes this much power, um, you need the ability to turn laps with it in order to be able to get that perfect lap. And if you have a car that you can only do two or three laps a weekend or two or three attempts, it's really hard to be perfect to the point uh, that's good enough to break a record because all the records are strong. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think uh, especially if you look at a lot of us are, let's say, not professional drivers. We don't do this for a living. And even if you are, you look at Formula One. I mean, they'll go test for multiple test sessions, lots and lots of time before a race or before they're qualifying, before right. they ever get on track. And uh, those are the best drivers in the world, and they've put hours into into it every race weekend before they start a quali- qualifying event. And we have guys that realistically go out whenever they can, and sometimes the only time they get to go out is the time attack event, and they're expected to throw a lap down, a flyer down, first lap, second lap, and then their car might break the third. Yep. So I, I, I think being able to put laps down is very important in a time attack car. Uh, you know, and even this weekend, I... Uh, I got to do the practice day in my good friend Nick's uh, Spoon Sports Accord Euro R. I did like an hour of track time on the practice day because I was like, you know what? I can't drive the NSX anywhere near that long. As we see, I broke it already. So sure, it's like sure. if I would have done that hour, I would have broken the car then. So I found a car that I could just get laps in, and it was very beneficial to come out, practice my line, really work on kind of the intricacies of this track, and then go out in my car and do flyers. You know, I think it was very helpful. And I think if you have a car that's reliable, it will do the same for you. So something that I've been thinking about as we've been talking is, uh, you said that that car has some like eccentricities to it. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the NSX makes it a challenging car to handle? Okay, so if you look at just the NSX in general, uh, and even like uh, the S2000 is a similar car in the sense that they are very, very quick and excellent handling cars. But they do so kind of by steering the rear, which makes them very challenging. Like Once you get those cars to a certain degree of slip angle, they're just gone. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened to me last year where I, w- I wasn't thinking. And then uh, I was kind of like out of nowhere. Just my mind wasn't where it should be. Spun the car. And the steering ratio is like, I think it's like 22 to 1 or something crazy. Uh, it's like a school bus, basically. And they did that so that that way... Uh, the car, when it came out, didn't have power steering. They wanted an 85-year-old woman to be able to drive the car. Oh, so sure. it made it a lot lighter on the on the wheels. And then naturally, the kinematics of the car lead to a kind of challenging car to drive. It's very rewarding to drive. But uh, I think they had... It's fun, like Andy Hollis, who's someone that you know I have a lot of admiration for, came to me this morning. He was like, hey, like great lap. And he was like, it looks very hard to drive. And I was like, it, it is a hard car to drive. And part of that's just the natural dynamics of the car are 
very challenging. So and, uh, I, I think it's important to point out that Andy Hollis has been on the show. We recorded with him uh, yesterday. Cool. Uh, Andy Hollis is driving a McLaren 720S, yes. and uh, he's no slouch behind yeah. the wheel. And he was quite excited with a 215 that he yeah. put down uh, yesterday. And so for context, the NSX is doing 213s. Yes. <laughs> And he's 10 miles per hour faster in the back straightaway. We were kind of chatting about it. Like, yeah. absolute monster of a car. And he's a phenomenal driver. And he's got a massive tire on the back of that thing. And that, I mean, the lap time that he did is so impressive. Like, to me, that's almost one of the most impressive lap times of the weekend to see someone come in a car with. Uh, this track is a very aero dependent track. And to see someone come in in a car that has no aero and a massive amount of horsepower and wheel it to that is truly impressive and he drove it home last night so yeah. that he could sleep in his own bed like mclaren's are the most frustrating car ever <laughs> they're real well uh in in many ways because yes. i think he's also told me about the reliability of mclaren's in general we not, also talked about that <laughs> yeah you know but um it's really cool to see the diversity of cars here at this event this is year number four for super lap battle yes and it's um it's really feeling like a like a, a thing yes and I, i'm ever. excited for that yeah, me too. And I, I love the diversity of it. I mean, I, I'm a big, big fan of GLTC. If the series was closer, uh, I'd 100% already have a car for it. But I've already talked to a couple guys about potentially building a car for the class and then leaving it on the East Coast or finding a shop where essentially I just leave a truck and trailer there and then come drive it because the GLTC uh, racing series is probably the most exciting one I've seen since you know the World Challenge of the late 90s, early 2000s. I think it really embodies that uh you know if you work hard you can be successful in something that you enjoy driving uh i think it also reaches out to a much bigger audience you know you look at what pirelli world challenge and uh turned into which is now sro and to be honest like no one gives a shit about it the only people that care about it are the people that are in it and i think i hear more people talking about grid life i mean i've had clients reach out to me you know for aero being like oh i'm building a gltc car i've heard so many people say i'm building a gltc car and i think that's super cool you know, uh, and that's here at Coda. And, it, you know, right before this, I was in the on the bridge watching the race, and it was a super exciting race. Corvette's really strong this weekend, and uh, we might have to do something about that. They but might need to get nerfed. At the moment, like, <laughs> this track lends itself to, let's call it the bullet cars. Yes. Cars that do everything they can to make as much horsepower as possible. Yeah. And so... Uh, is that going to be true at a track like Audubon? Are those going to be well, dominant? I don't. I don't think so. I think that's what's cool about the series. I like a series where, let's say, a car like obviously the Corvettes are strong now, but a car like Eric Kutils, who's he, it's like a front wheel drive, very well handling car, might have the advantage uh, on much tighter tracks. It'll get even like like James. I mean, James won yesterday in a front wheel drive TSX. Yep. I mean, granted, he has a boatload of work into that thing that's very impressive but it shows that if you work hard enough you can win in the series and i think uh it's cool that the series and the cars in it lend that you might have track to track advantages where if you're consistent over a season like let's say this isn't your track but you can get like p3 p4 p5 and then go to four tracks where you win you might win a championship right and i think that makes it way more exciting and winning a championship in this series um swenson doing it last year uh in his first season was uh, really impressive. And yeah. Jeremy can drive and has a history in time attack as well. And as as he does in autocross. And so he's a well-rounded driver. 
Um, but winning in GLTC, GLTC is hard. Yeah, it, it seems like it, you know, and I, I, I know a little bit about Swenson just from following along with the podcast and obviously being a time attacker. I saw what he did before and I didn't realize he had an autocross background. But for him to do that, like I, I thought that was impressive because you see a lot of guys in time attack switching to GLTC. Even uh, like Sean Krebsbach is switching, you know. I'm so really excited. I hope that Sean gets the car together and finished. I want to see what an Evo will do in a road race environment because I have no idea. I don't know what to expect. I'm excited to see it as well. I have a couple of friends that switched from Time Attack to Evos in Southern California and were incredibly successful. And it was very exciting. And they were guys that were blowing up engines and like all the frustrating things in Time Attack. They were either fast or broken. And then they did uh, some of the local kind of like NASA power to weight classes. And once they brought the power down, the car became very reliable. And they they were, you know, class champions. So I think uh, Sean's car has the capability to be very fast and I'm excited to see what he does. I'm sad to see him leaving Time Attack because I think he's one of those competitors that will do whatever it takes. I also like competitors that, uh, you know, people see crazy cars and think making a car look crazy makes it fast, whereas his car is almost kind so of like... So subdued. Yeah, and because he puts the effort where it matters, which is often what gets you most of it, you yeah. know. And I think Thomas Smith here this weekend is another example where he has an STI that if you look at it, you're like, this car should be slow, and he's out here running 220s, right. which is a very fast time at at this track. So guys like that, I have a lot of respect for that understand, you know, good fundamentals get you very far. So I'm sad to see him leave uh, time attack, but I'm excited to see what he does in GLTC. Well, uh, I look forward to hopefully seeing you again this year and uh, I'll, I'll be watching what you do on the West coast and at events that I'm not at, but I want to thank you for your time today and talking about time attack, because I know at least a portion of our listeners are really into it. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Where can people learn a little bit more about your business and follow you on social? Uh, so you can find me personally on Instagram under rsfuture underscore Amir. Uh, our shop account is under rsfuture. And you can see kind of what our shop's about and what we do on those two channels are probably the best or at rsfuture.com if you want to kind of see our products and whatnot. Awesome. Thanks for your time today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Slip Angle was created by Austin Cabot and Adam Jubay, co-hosted by Derek Yarbrough and production by Abram Schmucker, who mixes all of our terrible audio. If you like the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes and come and find us in the pits at a grid like to say hello. Hello.